Confluence Radio is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. We try to keep the stories alive that are good and that are positive, that help keep our people's memory strong, but um, we don't really want to poke a stick at that which, that which hurts most because it still hurts. The loss is still very much painful. Welcome to Confluence Radio, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. In this episode, we're going to hear from one of the best storytellers I know. Bobby Connor is Executive Director of the Tomuslicht Cultural Institute in Pendleton, Oregon. It's part of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. She's going to share reflections on the subject of Celilo Falls. The grand and historic series of waterfalls in the Columbia River was flooded by the Dalles Dam in 1957. It was a traumatic loss for tribes along the river that relied on the falls as one of the greatest fisheries in North America. It was also a spiritual and cultural stronghold. Here's Bobby. My name is uh, Bobby Connor in English, and uh, my Indian name is Sasawipum, and my ancestry is uh, Nez Perce um, from the Wallawa Band, as well as Snake River Nez Perce. Umatilla and Cayuse, and uh, Scots-Irish. The last name Connor has been our name since at least the 1830s when a mountain man married an Esperus woman. And my grandparents uh, that I spent a lot of time with here were Gilbert and Elsie Connor. And they were people who were raised, who were born at the turn of the last century, and who were living in a very transitional time between the old ways and the new ways. And so my grandfather was an interpreter. My mother's dad, Gilbert, was an interpreter for many old men and an interpreter on trips to Washington, D.C. He was the secretary of the Remnants Committee of the Remnants of the Nez Perce War, the, the bands that were remaining, the survivors of the Nez Perce War, um, in 1926 when he was about 29 years old. And um, his wife had, uh, they both had high school educations and through the boarding school and public school systems on my grandfather's side and on my grandmother's side, exclusively the government schools. uh, They were very industrious, uh, disciplined, Uh, civic-minded people, and they raised seven children together. And when my grandmother passed away in 1974, she had about 36 grandchildren. My grandmother's side is is the Big River side, the main stem side. So my great-grandmother, Wayashish, came from Wayam. And my connection to... Celilo is through many branches of the family at many generations, but most directly from Wayashish. For our elders and our ancestors, it's a very real place who experienced the mist and the roar and the fishing and the trading and 
everything that went on there. For the people who were born at the end of the baby boom generation, who heard our grandparents and parents talk about their experiences there, it's real, but we don't know it in person. For the rest of the generations after us, it's a myth, it's a legend. It's not a reality because they've never heard the roar, felt the mist, experienced the fishing, experienced the family, extended family gathering, sharing scaffolds. And so to keep that memory alive is important, but it's also important to kind of let some of those memories rest because it's hurtful, it's painful. So we, keep, we try to keep the stories alive that are good and that are positive, that help keep our people's memory strong, but um, we don't really want to poke a stick at that which, that which hurts most because it still hurts. At the Celilo Falls region, um, people gathered there historically before contact with white people by the thousands when the fish ran. And the pre-dam Columbia River estimates for most scientists for salmon were annually a million to two and a half million, at the most five million. But Oregon State University scientists who've used the Lewis and Clark journals to extrapolate and reapply that data suggest that the pre-dam Columbia River fishery was 15 to 20 million fish. So when our oral histories say that you could cross the river on the backs of fish, and when my mother describes the times of low water in the river, when, when um, you could cross the river on horseback or on foot, through the islands and through the rocks and in low water or swimming horses across, that it was, you take that, that low river water level or elevation and combine that with that many millions of fish coming back up the river, swimming all the way to Canada to the origin of the river, you can easily see that the oral histories were true, that they did cross the river on the backs of salmon in spawning season in October the same time of year Lewis and Clark arrived and didn't understand anadromous fish and wondered why the fish were dying and thought they might be poisoned or something. So <clears throat> these confluences were home sites. These places on the river were occupied for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and they were along the river that had the richest salmon fishery in the West. So Celilo was the Wall Street of the West. Anything that could be in trade in the West, Spanish helmets might be obtained at any given time if it was in the network at Celilo. And so it's the Columbia River's history before dams is a much richer, fuller reflection of our people's food sources and lifeways and songs and medical and medicinal and spiritual practices, all of that was very much alive on the Columbia River. Now when people visit the Columbia River, they don't see Indians. They might see Indians selling fish near Celilo or Cascade Locks. They might see Indians at Lone Pine Village outside of the Dalles. They might run into Indians in the grocery store, but 
we're out of sight and out of mind now because we live primarily in urban areas or on reservations and they don't see us on the river. Our people owned by families, by bands, by clans, owned fishing sites on the river. Most people don't believe we had a system of ownership, but we did, which included reciprocity and stewardship. It wasn't just property rights. And that ownership was evidenced by the scaffolds on the river. Uh, my mother's brother was two years older than her, Norman Connor. When he was 16, um, he was quite proud of his physique from 14 to 16 because he carried 50 and 100 pound sacks of wheat on his shoulders. And he had enormous shoulders and a very small waist. And he would be put on a cord tied off to a scaffold or some other anchor and put in the water at Celilo to anchor the bottoms of scaffolds into the rocks because he had the physical strength to withstand the turbulence of the river to get those scaffolds secured. He later became an iron worker, um, a bridge builder, but he had great physical strength. And people who had that kind of capacity were people who, over long periods of time, who installed those scaffolds and made it safe, sort of safe, to fish on the river in those very precarious um, situations and circumstances. And I find it, um, I guess, frustrating for people to see the river now and the graves are inundated, the petroglyphs are inundated, the stories are underwater like the graves and the petroglyphs in some ways because there's so much trauma associated with the loss of that living river, the historical trauma that is associated with the violence on the river, the canneries on the river, the exploitation of the resource on the river. Um, I don't think of it as the happy place it was. My mother and her little sister, Etta, were hoping to make a lot of money with hauling fish to the riverbank. And I, the way I heard it, that Grandpa said that they might get 50 cents or a dollar per fish getting them to the bank, for getting them up to the bank. Because up to the bank was all the way up the rocks, up to the top where the trucks were and the trucks would take them to the canneries or to where they were gonna be sold. And so that for a 12 or 14 year old kid was a lot of money. 50 cents or a dollar was quite a bit of money at that time. And, it's, and they were all kids born during the depression, post-depression. And so they, um, went to the river and they didn't realize at first that, and I think those boxes that were on the cables, the two, they were small enough that the two of them could fit in a box together to go out there. 
and they had to go out and kind of make their own arrangement or plan to haul the fish for a fisherman. So fishermen say, sure, kid, I'll, I'll, you know, so be here. When you see fish on it, be here, and we'll put... So they'd put them in the box, and it was a pulley system, and they'd put them in the box, and depending on the size of the fish, they could put one or both girls in the box with the fish, or, because they, because the box, if, because they had to kill the fish, but they wanted them fresh, so the they would get them up on the bank and then they, you know, they'd club them and then they wanted them to go right up. And they would, they would get in the box with the fish and then get to the other side and they had to get the fish out of the box and up the bank. And mom said it would take two of them to get one fish up the bank. And 50 cents, it might take an hour to get from the fish, the box, to the bank, up the bank to the truck. It'd take a long time. She didn't have a time frame, but it'd take a long time to get one really slippery, smelly fish. And they'd get completely covered with fish scales and fish slime to get that one fish up to the truck. And so it wasn't just messy and inglorious. It was arduous and they didn't make as much money as they hoped. So people see the huge root bags made out of dog bane, and they marvel at the idea of making a flat bag that's rectangular. She said, we made clothes out of that. And we used to eat things that we don't eat anymore. And I was late bringing her home from a powwow in La Grande over Mother's Day weekend in May. And she was hungry, and I was feeding her dried salmon till we got home so I could cook her something hot to eat that wasn't greasy. And she was eating the dried fish, and she said, oh, I miss some of our foods. And, and she said, like fish eyes. And being stupid, I said, what do they taste like? And she said, fish eyes. <laughs> I don't know what I thought she'd say. But, um, she said they put them on a string, they get all the fish eyes, they put them on a string and dry them in the sun, and they'd be like trail mix. You're listening to Confluence Radio, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River System. It's interesting that so much of what is captured in history about the early West and the Columbia River are from missionary records, trading fur company records, and military records. And they rarely expose the perspective, view, or voice of indigenous peoples. So when we tell our accounts and our oral histories, they're often negated and invalidated or diminished as quaint folklore. And because our oral histories go back to the times of the Missoula floods 
And because oral history had structure and discipline in the old culture, I get kind of offended that people are so dismissive of oral histories. And so capturing those stories, those oral accounts that have been preserved through time is fairly critical to keeping that knowledge alive. But there's meaning and there's learning. But I, I think about the oral histories that pioneers probably didn't necessarily believe. And those are really instructive. So when our elders talked about being able to cross the Columbia River on the backs of fish, we're not talking about Jesus walking on water. We're talking about the fact that in October, when the river's low, before dams were built, and the creamers, the spawning fish, come back up, and the river is so thick with fish, there's more fish than water. And Lewis and Clark didn't understand that. They thought they were sick, that they were poisoned, that there was something wrong with them because they didn't understand the anadromous cycle. It's really important to remember that to us, those oral histories about being able to walk across the river on the backs of fish is a fact. It's not a story, it's a fact. And when we think about that, and then people at OSU independently decide to take the Lewis and Clark journals and extrapolate the data in the journals and come up with the conclusion that maybe we were right that the base level, the baseline for fish in the Columbia River is actually 15 to 21 million fish a year, not one and a half to five million, which is what most of the fisheries departments of the three states in the Northwest would have us believe. 15 to 21 million fish a year. That's crossing the river on the backs of fish. It's not a story, it's not oral history, it's a fact to us. And when somebody scientifically corroborates that, that's lovely. That's lovely. But it gives us, as the generation at the fulcrum, the challenge, as has been described, to restore that fishery. Which means, whether people want to talk about it or not, dams may not be forever. Then we may not see them leave in my lifetime. But they're not... Cement is not made to last forever, rebar or not. And so I think it's important for us, we're reminded of the coyote story and the dam on the Columbia River and what happened then. And we have so many stories that are instructive to us that tell us as when we're the young people in the culture coming along, there's work for you to do. And here's another story that gives you another idea of some work for you to do, whether it's restoring a species, whether it's working on fish passage, whether it's working on um, uh, habitat projects or working on language of, of the river. Whatever that is, there's an opportunity, I think, from these stories for us to get our life's work laid out for us, to get the idea that there's more for us to do on behalf of not only our old people and our culture, but our tomorrow. I think those stories really tell us, they kind of set the bar for how we serve our community. And I, I really think that a lot of these things that we talk about when we talk about stories, it's really important to understand that that really is um, a fabric, a structure in our culture. Um, those stories are not only inspirational and factual, but those stories are the foundation 
of what we're supposed to know to carry ourselves forward. And that, you know, that, the only, that then gives us the need to make sure the stories go forward, to make sure the stories aren't forgotten, and to make sure that we remember the integrity that our elders had when they told those stories, whether the white Western scientists understood or believed them or not. It didn't change the content of their stories. They stuck to their guns, and eventually science will catch up with them. And we'll have to wait. <laughs> You're listening to Bobby Connor, Executive Director of the Tumust Slicked Cultural Institute in Pendleton, Oregon, talking about Celilo Falls. When we talk about LifeWays, it's an enormous undertaking just to begin to share sort of the tenets of the culture that has sustained our people for more than 10,000 years. When my mother was talking about the beautiful life our, our people lived, it was rigorous, it was hard, it was not easy. But her favorite memories were being a child in the mountains in the summer before air conditioning, with her and her sister and her brother, the two young, one two years younger and one two years older, barefoot in a gingham dress, three of them on a horse, being sent to the bottom of the canyon to haul water back to the top. And some of them were closed containers and some of them were open buckets. So it kept the kids busy all day. Because <laughs> the buckets may have started out full at the bottom, but I'm sure they weren't full at the top. But that living in the mountains in the summertime, that her mother and her aunt and all of her ancestors before had lived was a remnant of the life that they lived in my grandmother's time, and my grandfather's time was a little bit different, but my grandmother was still traveling the seasonal life way, leaving in the spring when the snow had melted enough in the mountains, and they would leave the mouth of the Umatilla River or the high point above it where Echo is, and they would make their way south, and it they would take a journey of a thousand miles with um, the family all on horseback. When they got into the Snake River country in the shale, uh, the woman I'm named after made rawhide pad covers for the dogs, like moccasins, to um, be able to travel on foot. The woman I'm named after used to talk to the snakes on the trail, so they'd, you know, she'd warn them that soldiers or pigs were coming and they'd be trampled, and she'd tell them to get out of the way and they wouldn't bother the snakes, and the snakes wouldn't bother them. And they would make their way a 1,000 miles down, and they'd go into Catherine Creek in the Minam country to the Snake River and follow the snake. And in September, when Roundup, the Pendleton Roundup first started, her family wasn't there because they were in the Weezer Payette area fishing for salmon because salmon were still abundant there. They're not anymore. And so they would make their way back to the Snake River and follow it all the way back around to the Tri-Cities and come home. And they would come home with a bad year was a dozen pack horses full of food and a good year was 21 pack horses full of food. And they were doing that, gathering food from spring until October when they'd come home to, to winter villages. And so for my sister, who's here with me, Dana, um, we grew up with Grandma, and, you know, for me, I had the best 
goals as a kid. My grandmother had a cat that rode in a saddlebag. Our grandmother had a cat that rode in a saddlebag on her horse on the seasonal round. For me, that was like, wow, I mean, I want a cat that rides a horse. I mean, you know, it's like, so as a kid, they were the most uh, vivid depictions of a life that was beautiful. The cat's name was Muzzer, and it also rode the um, Victrola that played Caruso on our great-grandmother's wind-up machine. So it it was very, it was fanciful in some respects because listening to her talk about how they made camp, how she would dig a pit around the, the teepee and they would put, she would put bear grease on, she braided this, my great aunt, great great aunt, braided horsehair ropes that were very coarse and spindly, purposefully, and put bear grease on them around them, and that would be in the tent so that nothing would come in the tent and bother them. And they, all the, all the things that they did as ways of going when our grandmother was a child, those stories are the best. Um, because, not just because they're not something I know personally, I didn't live them, but because they remind us of a time when our knowledge of this landscape over thousands of miles was so intimate that we knew how to live in those places and get along with the rattlesnakes and get along with everything else that lived there in order to gather food and to take care of sort of one another through that process. Um, for me, that is really sort of the like that's sort of the bar that's where the standard is set i mean whoa you know um it's like if i had that kind of life you know my cats my dogs my whole family on horseback for you know 6 6 or 8 months out of the year that's a dream that's heaven so i think of that and think to remind it reminds me of lots of things in my family that are important to me not only my family and our lifeways and our foods but how we took care of other things, the cat, the dog. I mean, for me, that, that was just phenomenal, the care that was given to everything that traveled and everything, every place we traveled through, every place we camped. And she would talk about the system of reciprocity where it made no sense to carry heavy tools. You know, fill your saddlebags with rocks, that's insane. So all those tools were there when you got to the place you needed them and no one would break them or vandalize or steal them. They would be where you needed them, when you needed them, and you'd come back and they'd be there next year. And to live in a place where that kind of honor and integrity and uh, systematic reciprocity was sort of the rule of the road, that's heaven. That's really heaven to me. That was Bobby Connor. Executive Director of the Tumuslicht Cultural Institute in Pendleton, Oregon. To learn more about Bobby Connor and her work, go to tumuslicht.org. I'll spell that. T-A-M-A-S-T-S-L-I-K-T dot O-R-G. Tumuslicht. It means interpreting our own story. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. And remember... Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Thanks for listening to Confluence Radio.